Amazing, majestic, stunning. All words to describe Rafael Nadal's run at Roland Garros this year, where he demolished Novak Djokovic to claim an unprecedented 13th title in Paris and equaled Roger Federer's record of 20 Grand Slam titles in a truly unbelievable display. And on the women's side, it was Iga Sviantek, who, well, she was just amazing, dropping 28 games all tournament to claim her maiden Grand Slam crown. This is Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo. We do have a big show lined up for you today. Tumani Carroll, journalist from The Guardian in London, is going to join us. And Shane Leonage, data guru is going to chat to us as well about all of the data trends at the French Open. But we can't do Breakpoint without this man, and this man's name is Joel Frucci. Joel, how are you? I'm going very, very well, Val. Although, I'll tell you what, this morning, I did actually suffer a minor head knock walking into my bedroom because my head was just wobbling that much. <laughs> uh, from, uh, from Igor Sviantek winning, uh, winning the French Open because, um, I, look, I, I called it on, on the Tennis Menu's Daily Show during the week after she beat... Uh, Simona Halep in, in the fourth round. Yeah. She was freaking phenomenal in that match and then just kept it up all the way through, did not lose a set. She was fantastic and she's going to be around for a very, very long time. And this is the first of many, I think. Yep. And, uh, and yeah, it's it's just it, the way that she played and the way that she negated the clay and, and, and adapted the conditions and really destroyed everybody that was in her way. And as I said, 28 games throughout the whole tournament, that's averaging a 6-2, 6-2 win every match. So amazing from her. And, and you did you did pick that. And I guess let's start with the women's draw, um, talking about that and what she was able to do, a 6-4, 6-1 win over Sophia Kennan in the final. She clubbed winners, really targeted Kennan's forehand. Um, and Kennan's leg just sort of gave out towards the end of the match. And in that second set, she said that she faded, but... Um, just full credit to Iga Swiatek with what she was able to do throughout this tournament. It was real. It was Poland Garros, really. <laughs> yeah, it was. I think what was most impressive about uh, Iga throughout the tournament was that all the players that she played against, and she did play some some big names um, in in this event. Obviously, we know that she beat Simona Halep. She played against Marketa Vondrusova, the finalist last year, who of course Ash Barty beat. Um, played Jeannie Bouchard, who was reborn to, to an extent and obviously beat Sophia Cannon, the Australian Open champion, in the final. What I loved about Eager was that no matter who she played, she stood up with her, her chin up, her head held high on her side of the court and just said to her opponent, you're going to have to beat me. If you want to win this match, you're going to have to hit through me because I can hit through you. And she she was just an, an image of that. She just radiated this this confidence, this bravado, and it was just so great to watch. I mean, how refreshing is that, Val, for, for a player who's 19 years old, for her to to do that, to take that level of confidence into a tournament, into a slam final, and then win her first title in <laughs> at Roland Garros right. at a Grand Slam. It was it was it was brilliant. And I think more than anything, like more than more than the way that she played, I think it was just her attitude that that was was really infectious and, and what impressed me the most. And I think I think that is why I feel as though she she won't let her guard down, like moving forward. Obviously, I think it's going to be really important how she backs this up and how she sort of stays grounded. Uh, she's working with a sports psychologist, which I think is, is going to be really useful. But I think she's got everything covered mentally, uh, not least physically on the court to actually now be able to replicate this this high, high bar that she set for herself so early. Yeah, exactly right. And it's and I, I think all of those factors will bode very well for her. But the way she plays as well, the angles that she's able to generate, and as you said, the sports psychologist, the the mental side of things that and I think she's got it down pat. And uh, this was her after the match uh, on Saturday or Sunday morning, just saying that she just wanted to keep her expectations low. Well, everybody's stressed when they're playing Grand Slam Finals. I just knew that uh, Sofia may also be stressed and that she's not a machine. So um, I, I I was aware that um, we're both, we can both like struggle and we're not probably going to play our best tennis because uh, it's hard with so much pressure. Uh, but I just did everything... I've done in the previous rounds. I focus on technique and um, tactics, and uh, I try to get rid of expectations. And um, you know, just played one ball after another, and 
I didn't really care um, if I'm gonna lose or win, as I said uh, like yesterday. So really, <laughs> um, I think the main key was just keeping my expectations low. Iga Swiatek there talking after her Roland Garros win, but it was a tournament with some amazing narratives. Joel and um, Petra Kvitova getting through to her first Roland Garros semi-final since 2012, only the second time she's been through the final eight of Roland Garros, and also Nadia Podoroska, the qualifier from Argentina, getting through to a Grand Slam semi-final in only her second main draw at a major. It's just it is it is genuinely stunning what she was able to do, and unfortunately couldn't even come close to Sviantec, but to take out Alina Svitolina in the quarterfinals in the way that she did it, um, it, it was an amazing story. Yeah, it was a beautiful story. And I, I think it, it really kind of was drilled home when there was this great photo that the WTA put up on their social media of of, uh, of, of Nadia standing, well, socially distanced with uh, Diego Schwartzman at uh, Philip Chatrier. And that was, yeah. that was a really great, great photo, I thought. Um, just the, the two of them smiling, obviously, they've achieved a bit this this tournament, Diego's into the top ten for the first time um, in his career. But yeah, I mean, Nadia Podoroska, what a what a fantastic story. These are the kind of runs that really can set the player up for, for life and really uh, really take take their game, take their career to a new level. She's twenty three years old, as you mentioned, Bell. She'd only played in one Grand Slam previous to this, and the fact that she's just charged into a French Open semi final is huge for her. She's gone up eighty three spots to world number 48. Yeah. So um, obviously uh, you'd think that going into the Australian Open, she won't have to qualify. Um, so that's, that, that can be huge for her. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's just, that's just massive. So look, uh, uh, you know, a wonderful story. And also um, Martina Trevisan as well, uh, another qualifier into the quarterfinals. So, you know, again, even though we, you know, we had our questions about the health situation at, at Roland Garros, and obviously we spoke to Alan Perez last week, and she she shed a lot of light on what was going on there in terms of protocols, and we were we were you know pretty critical of the situation. But you know, looking at the French Open in hindsight, you'd have to say that even though on the men's side, certainly um, not much changed in that Rafael Nadal went on, and and the women's side was was quite similar to the U.S. Open, um, probably the opposite on, in women's sense because Naomi Osaka won it again, but. Um, it was similar overall in the sense that there were opportunities for a lot yep. of these women and, and they, they did take those opportunities, not least Iga, Nadia Podoroska, Martina Trevisan. So in that sense, it'll I think it'll have uh, quite a, a favourable legacy. I think so. And, and you are right. Like It's her first ever title, Iga Sviantec Podoroska, only her second main draw, as I said. She lost in qualifying seven times before this tournament. Um, and her only Grand Slam main draw, she'd, uh, she'd gotten through qualifying but lost in the first round of the 2016 US Open. Um, Sviantec up from 54 to 17 in the world now. Grand Slam champion um, that can never be taken away from her. Um, an amazing, amazing performance, as you said. Trevisan as well. But th- the narratives that came out of both sides of the draw, I think, and we'll move we'll move on to the men's. and, and Well, Rafa. Rafa again. There's death. There's taxes. And Rafa dominating on court, Philippe Chatrier. And, and we discussed this on the Tennis Menu's Daily Rolling Garros show. And if you want to go back and watch some of those, you can subscribe to the Tennis Menu's YouTube channel. But we discussed that I think it was a, um, a, a complete and utter flip from the 2019 Australian Open final when Djokovic and Nadal both in pretty good form. Nadal hadn't dropped a set going into that final. Djokovic had dropped a couple, um, but owns Rod Laver Arena to an extent. And he just, Nadal couldn't even get close to him. Could not get close. It was 6-3, 6-2, um, Djokovic was absolutely supreme. But in this, um, I think he only hit nine unforced errors for that entire match. Um, Nadal hit something in excess of, I think, uh, 28 or 30. And then yesterday, and then on Sunday night, Rafa destroys Novak 6-love, 6-2, 7-5 and only hits 14 unforced errors for the entire match. Djokovic alone hits 17 in the second set and 52 for the match. That's not Novak, but he couldn't come up with anything to to negate what Nadal was doing because the tactical prowess and just the surface prowess that he's got on clay is just phenomenal. And you, uh, phenomenal Nadal, as Robbie Koenig, our great friend, would put it. Um, and he yeah. just managed to... He managed to just destroy Djokovic, which is something that we haven't been able to say probably since Dominic Team did it in the 2017 Australian Open quarterfinals because he's just been that good for that long and he's such a brick wall and manages to absorb the power. But 
Nadal was just way too good. And, to, and look, we, we've discussed this at length over the past few days, you and I, and the magnitude with what with what Nadal has done at Roland Garros, Joel, 100 wins for two losses. Stunning. 13 titles at one Grand Slam. We're never going to see anything like that again. And who's to say that he can't get more? Um, it's just, I, I'm, I'm sort of sitting here still baffled at, at what he's been able to do in Paris. Yeah, well... I mean, it's, it's interesting because uh, we watching that match. It was really what we saw from from Rafa in in the mid mid to late two thousands. He was just exceptional, and we've spoken a lot about the you know the nuances of this French Open with the balls and the, the the slowness of of the courts. So you know, after after twelve titles, you do start to wonder, um, you know, I guess you know how, how much. Uh, how much does does Rafa value these things, um, and and where do they sit in terms of his achievements? So before we talk any more about it, we'll actually hear from the man himself. And uh, well, it's well no surprise that uh, this this particular title means a hell of a lot to him, especially in the conditions. Well, of course, I played uh, at a, an amazing level of tennis. No, the first two for two sets and a half, I played great. Honestly, oh, no, I can't say another thing. Um, it's impossible to have this score against uh, against him without playing great. Uh, yeah, we played uh, a very good final. I played at my highest level when I needed to play at my highest level. So something that I am very very proud. And uh, yeah, the personal satisfaction is big because. Uh, under the circumstances that uh, we played this Roland Garros, that uh, even if I played uh, an amazing match this afternoon, the conditions uh, are a little bit uh, not the conditions that I will choose never to play a, an event uh, like like this. But uh, I was able to adapt uh, well. I was able to, as I say, the first day, you know, to to be positive in every circumstances that I, I, I was facing during the whole event. Uh, trying to accept all the challenges uh, in terms of sometimes the feeling on the on the ball have haven't been great because of the cold and everything uh, but I take it in a positive way you know and just try to 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 work every day with the right determination looking for my 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 goals and yeah I think is one of the Roland Garros that have a, a better personal value for myself. Yeah, so Rafa there. Um, yeah, I mean, as, as we said, Val, he was, he was just exceptional. And, and as we know, Novak Djokovic this season, unbeaten sans Laura Clark, obviously. Um, but, I mean, to, to do what he did to, to Novak, who in the last couple of years has probably played the most consistent level of tennis I've ever seen from just about anybody. For, for Rafa at 34 to throw it back the way that he did, and you reeled off a few superlatives at the start of the show. Um, you know, I think we're when we've been talking, I think we're just about out of words to describe how good this guy is on on clay. And it's going to be interesting, like when it comes to when it comes to talk of of goats and stuff with with Roger Federer. Um, you know, obviously there's been a lot of goat talk over over the shutdown period because it hasn't really been a hell of a lot else to talk about. We've been talking about that and. It's going to be interesting where that where that goes from here. I mean, obviously, there's still some water to go under the bridge for both of them. But you know, if, if things do stay on twenty, um, you know, can you have two goats, or you know, if we if we can only have one, do you sort of lean towards the guy that's probably got a more even spread of titles, or do you go with the guy that has won thirteen on clay? But that in itself is just such such an incredible achievement because no other player, I don't think, ever in men's or women's tennis, he's going to win 13 French Open titles or, for that matter, uh, 13 of, of any Grand Slam. No, you're right there. But I think with the GOAT debate, it is it is an interesting one because there are stats that both go in the favour of both Roger and Rafa. And if you look at them, right. I think... And it, it is a massive fan of worms as well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And look, uh, Rafa leads the head-to-head against Roger 14-2 to on clay. But then on hard and grass, Roger actually leads the head-to-head um, I think uh, it's 12-8 or something like that. So um, I, I think, and Rogers won 103 career titles. He's won six Australian Opens, which was a record before Novak Djokovic. Um, he was equal with uh, Roy Emerson and Novak Djokovic um, two years ago when he won the Australian Open in 18. Djokovic has since gone past that, but he's won eight Wimbledons, which is a record, and five US Opens, which is also a record. 
not to mention his six ATP finals titles and all the other things that he's won over his career. I just think, and he's been able to do it for that long. And I think watchability is probably another thing. I think a lot more people would rather watch Roger than Rafa. And personality comes into into account as well. And I think both of them have that infectious personality. And that's why I don't think... I think there's a lot of other factors outside the stats that decide who the greatest of all time debate is. Um, and I think if the numbers do change and if they do shift, I still think at the moment because of the sheer dominance on the one surface and he's won 13 of his 20 slams on the clay, that's nearly 70% of his slams have been won at Roland Garros. I think it's at 65% of them, which is a really, really high number. That only leaves 35% at the other slams um, to make up that total of 20. So I think Roger in that situation is probably still considered the greatest of all time. Plus he spent more weeks at number one, but I, yeah. And, and that's where, that's why I'm leaning more to Roger, but I think both of them just go hand in hand with Fidal. But if you move on to Novak Djokovic, he sits still on 17, but you know, he's had his chances that I think he really blew it at the U S open. He really blew it with that default because he looked unbeatable. And yes, Kyle Edmund did take a set. Yes, Karina Busta was about to serve for the first set and looked good. But Djokovic just had that level that he was able to go to throughout that entire time in America. And now you're looking at he's what lost one completed match in 2021 at the French Open now. And he's come out of it with one Grand Slam. That shows how cruel this sport can be. And I actually don't think, with, with the rise that we're going to expect from Stefano Tsitsipas, from Alexander Zverev, from Dominic Thiem, from Daniel Medvedev, Roger Federer comes back, Nadal's not going anywhere. I don't know if Djokovic is going to be able to get the three that he needs to catch Roger and Rafa, because the ATP put up a stat this morning saying that he uh, uh, most Grand Slam titles after 30. Nadal, six. Novak, five. Federer, four. So... Although, yeah, they've had their success after 30, they haven't won that many more than Federer since they've hit the 30 barrier, although they are five years younger, four and five years younger. Um, bodies will start to, to give out. Um, Federer is a lot easier on his body than what Rafa and Novak are. So I can't see them having the longevity that he does, although Djokovic is trying to shorten the points a little bit more. So... It's, it's very interesting to see what we're going to see here, but I, I'm, I'm ruling it out now, Joel. I know it's a big call, but I don't think I don't think Djokovic is going to catch Roger and Rafa because he's still got to win three more, and there's a lot of players that are confident and nipping at the heels that they think that they can do it, and I don't know if Djokovic is going to be able to have the legs. to And look, fitness-wise, yeah, great. He's going to be able to do it, but I don't think he's going to be able to take the, the three that he needs or even four to surpass them because I still think Roger at Wimbledon is going to be difficult to beat and Rafa at the French well Jesus <laughs> he, he's just the guy's just a, the guy's just unbelievable so yeah I, I'm not sure what you think of that but yeah I, I I don't think Djokovic is there I'm ruling it out I think he's blown his chance yeah look I, I still think Novak can can get to 20 um time is clearly an enemy for him but having said that now, going into the Australian Open, I think he's the unbackable favourite um, to, to, to win the tournament. Um, obviously, we hope it, it happens, of, of course, and it looks like it probably will happen. But, yeah, I think I think Novak mm-hmm. going into that event, it's it's his slam. Rod Laver Arena is, is, is his court. Um, he, he dominates it. He owns it. So I think, uh, look, I'm, I won't be surprised if he if he wins that. I think it'll be pretty, pretty run-of-the-mill. But the other thing I think I've got going for him that is going for him, Val, is... Um, just the level of consistency that he's got in his game. And uh, we've written him off before and, and he came back and, and he surprised us with the fact that not only did he match his previous best, but in my opinion, he by far and away uh, surpassed it as well. And when we talk of fitness, I've, I can't remember a guy that, that recovers as well as, as Novak does. Now, um, you know, how and why that, that is, whether it's, you know, he's, he's, all the things he's put in place with his diet or, you know, maybe he's just naturally a, a freak, but we, we don't really know. But either either way, the fact that the guy has these niggles that we see so often and, and he gets up every time, it is just, it is incredible. The guy is is a machine and look, I, I think that, that he can do it. Yeah. And yes, going into 2021, you probably put your house on Rafa to win maybe number 14 at, at Roland Garros. Um, whether Roger Federer can go again at Wimbledon, we don't know. But um, Novak... 
the thing with Novak is he's he isn't ever present for, for all these Grand Slams, so I'm not ruling him out in, 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 in any way. Yeah, fair enough. And I think the the way that he does go about his business and look, I, I think a lot of those niggles aren't really niggles. Um, I think they're there for gamesmanship tactics. And I know we've had this discussion on the show and the Nolo fam can attack me for that, but I'm standing by my word. But look, he is a supremely fit man and we can't deny that in the way that he does play and recover is second to none. And I think that's what he's made a name for himself for being able to recover and and the the work that he does. And Craig O'Shaughnessy said this a few weeks ago and how hard he actually works to, to stay at number one and the band work that he does and the stretching he does for two hours. And then he'll go and hit for two hours. Like the guy is willing to do what it takes. So um, look, I, I, I think he can still win the slams and I think he is going to be the favorite for the Australian Open, but whether he can win another three or maybe four to pass Roger and Rafa, I don't think that's going to happen. So you never know, but yeah, we'll see. But let's get to Tumani Karail. And our special guest on today's show is a man. He's a wonderful man, and I've had the pleasure of meeting him a few times and sitting with him and watching the great Roger Federer at uh, the Australian Open back in uh, 2017 and 18. He's one of tennis' most prominent journalists around the world. He's based in London from The Guardian. He is Tumani Karail. Tumani, thanks so much for joining us from uh, from London. How are you, and how are you feeling after a busy two weeks? I'm knackered, but I'm very good. Thanks for having me, and... Yeah, I'm, I'm ha- always happy to talk about tennis. Yeah, it's been a long time since we've actually gotten to see each other, but it's nice to actually have the face-to-face over Zoom, I guess. And uh, hopefully yeah. next year you'll be allowed to travel down to, to Melbourne with our, our lockdown laws hopefully ending soon. We never know uh, with, with our government here. But um, how did you find <laughs> the um, the two weeks working remotely from, um, you said it was your bedroom uh, off air. So yeah. how did you find the two weeks working at uh, Roland Garros from, uh, from the comfort of your own bed? It's <laughs> not... Yeah, I mean, I didn't work in my bed. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, it, it was. Um, it, no, it's just it's interesting. Like, as I'm sure, I'm sure you know, you've covered a tournament. Like, when when you're at a tournament, it's very like an immersive experience. Like, you're in this. It feels like you're like you're actually in a bubble where you know it, your whole day revolves around the tournament, and there's press conferences, there are matches, there's all this this things going on. So it's it's just funny trying to and. It, to replicate that at home when you're not, you know, you're not there and you have to be wary of time, like press conference times, because, you know, you could just miss them. You know, there's not someone like screaming the announcement from, you know, micro, you know, microphones in the press room or something. So it's, it's just, a, it's different and it, it takes a while. It was, it was weirder, I think, at the US Open as well with the, um, the time difference. Here it was fine in terms of just, you know, it's, it's one hour difference. So, but in general, it was good. I enjoyed watching it, and you know, it's yeah, it's it's good to have tennis back. Yeah, two slams in six weeks. It's it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's something that I guess we're really only used to, kind of maybe in that Wimbledon French Open realm where where they're about a month apart. But this one, these two were so close in the U.S. Open and the French Open, and and the narratives coming out of this Roland Garros tournament was simply magnificent with uh, with what happened with uh, Iga Swiatek taking and dominating the women's draw, really, dropping 28 games throughout the entire tournament, and also Rafael Nadal making it through his fourth Roland Garros uh, title without dropping a set, which is truly remarkable. But what did you take from the tournament, and, and what, were, what were your favourite moments throughout uh, the two weeks in Paris? Um, yeah, I think, you know, at the start it was, you know, fun, funnily enough, you know, after the, the lockdown, the lockdown and, and all the kind of the suspect or suspension, we didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, and with, with at the US Open, with, with the exception of, um, you know, the, Djokovic being defaulted, um, things were quite, you know, it seemed like the people who were doing well kind of came back doing well. There were a lot of, you know, even like in the women's draw, you had, you know, Venus, um, Serena, Vika, Osaka, you know, it was kind of quite, things were quite normal, whereas in Paris, there was a lot of chaos. There were so many seeds, you know, losing early. There were qualifiers, players who who didn't, you know, you think of like Martina Trevisan, the mm-hmm. qualifier who made the quarters, or Hugo Gaston, or, I mean, there's so many players who just appear, you know, seem to, because I think because of the surface, because of how close the slam was and all these different things, you know, a lot of different things happened that were really interesting to see. And, you know, one of them was, as you, as you mentioned, it ended up in the women's draw with Juventek, you know, just kind of, I mean, come, just 
finding her top form and just destroying the field. And so for me, it was just interesting to see how those things developed over the two weeks. Let's talk about Iga uh, Tamani. I, I, I just loved watching her play. And not only did I love watching her play, but I loved hearing from her after she played. And uh, I listened to the interview that um, her sports psychologist, uh, Daria Abramovich, I believe is, is her name. She did that chat with um, Ben Rothenberg on No Challenges Remaining, which I know that uh, you were on a few times as well uh, during the tournament. And it was just so refreshing to, to hear from her and even like her speech at the end of the final, um, just so unscripted. And I guess that's the great thing with, with young players. They, they tend to just be kind of off the cuff and, and just, just give you a lot, at least from a media point of view, to to really talk about. So I guess, did you have um, a bit to do with her in, in the press conferences? Did you uh, sort of sit through um, some of the, the interviews that, that she gave? And, and what, like, what do you make of her personality? Yeah, um, like it's, regarding the um, psychologist, I, I found that just really interesting. Obviously, it's not a new thing for players to have them and, and to, 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 you know, use them to, to help with their careers and players have been quite, have spoken about that, but this is the most open I've seen from a player in terms of, you know, she's, she's, she's traveling with Triontech, you know, she's allowed her, uh, her to give interviews and to, and she's openly speaking about it. So I feel like in, in some ways it was almost like breaking a new barrier in terms of, you know, being able to get a better insight of what value that brings. And from Triontech, that's, that's, really interesting because it shows her security and that she's not kind of trying to hide things from everyone. And yeah, in terms of just her personality in general, I think she's quite, um, she's, she's quite an introvert. And, you know, as you said, like that was her first, you know, she's, that was her first WTA tour title. She did, she hadn't done a speech for, you know, a proper, proper like big tournament. And <laughs> it was quite yeah. funny to see her not really knowing how to end. Um, but yeah, she's she's quite she's an introvert. She's interesting, you know. A lot has been made of like, you know, she she was in school until last year. She's talking about how much she loves maths, and she, you know, her, her music tastes are of interest to a lot of people because it's not, you know, <laughs> it's not what a lot of people thought. Um, but yeah, she's she's just a you know she's a quiet like down to earth girl, and I think she's she's she has come across well, and that will probably help, you know people kind of latch onto her and support her in the future. Yeah, I loved at the end of her acceptance speech where she just went, sorry, I have no idea what, what's coming next. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, just, just pretty much ended it there. But I guess in terms of what we actually saw on the court, I think it's always really interesting with, with young champions and, and players that have success when they're young. And uh, I look at players like Yelena Rostopenko and also Jeannie Bouchard to an extent, even though Jeannie didn't win a Grand Slam, obviously Yelena did. And both players uh, at a time have had their sort of downward periods um, since then. And look, I don't think that will happen with Iga because like I, what I saw from her, I was really impressed by both on and off the court. I think she's got all the makings of someone that can maintain uh, that high level. What, do you do you sort of buy into that, Smiley? Do you think that she can, um, uh, going forward, maintain the level that she's now set for herself? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it, it will, you know, as, as you said, those are kind of, you know, that Ostapenko and Bouchard and other many other players show how tough tough it is to do that to to have big results and then to back it up with all the pressure and everything that comes with being a you know a champion a celebrity and whatever. Um, I think yeah, I think her she's it does seem like you know particularly you know someone like Ostapenko it was you know she is so streaky you know it was clear when she won her slam that she was so streaky and she was just hitting lines every two seconds, which is hard to maintain and with Bouchard also kind of the celebrity that came with it was a lot but I think she has you know she's so good and she has so much in her game you know both in terms of being and you know having huge weapons and being able to dominate players as she did but also being a great athlete and being intelligent so you know that she she definitely like I think she should really reach a point where her base level is very good and and reliable in a way that I mean and also like to, Think of Ashley Barty, you know, where and you get to the point where you can be more consistent. But I mean, it's still a question mark. I, I think what I think is that the good thing is that there are so many young players that have are coming up at once, and I think that might help to kind of just push 
push on to help them push on together rather than being kind of Kostopenko a few years ago on her own and you know being the only person in that position really. Yeah, I do agree. And and Ostapenko in that French Open, you, you mentioned how streaky she was. And I think she was down by a set, I think, in the fourth round, the quarterfinal and the final. And not to mention the semifinal against Timea Bashinsky, she also went to three sets. So she didn't have it all her own way throughout that tournament. Sviontek did. But changing tacks a little bit to the men's side. And, well, Rafael Nadal to go through a fourth role in Garros now without dropping a set. And the way and the magnitude in which he won his 13th Roland Garros title is truly astonishing. And I think watching what he did against Novak Djokovic and completely flipped the result of the 2019 Australian Open final in which Djokovic destroyed Nadal on a court that he owns at, at Melbourne Park. And Nadal did the same to Djokovic on uh, on the court that he owns and caught Philippe Chatrier. But what, what did you make of Rafa's performance? And, and what did you think during the match? And... How how are you? How are you, how was your head really watching the the quality that he was producing? Yeah, uh, yeah. My I mean, my my mind was blown. It was it was a crazy performance. Obviously, you know, he'd he'd come in. I mean, he hadn't lost a set, mm. obviously, but there were question marks because of you know his his form and the fact mainly just the fact that he hadn't had had so few matches after the long break and his last tournament he lost to Schwarzman, and so he played well. And I, I was really impressed with. Actually, his performance against Schwarzman, the way he kind of got that done in three sets, but still, it's just such a huge step up. And he, but the good thing for Rafa is that I think he went into the match kind of knowing that if he didn't bring his very top level, he had no chance. Like he would, he would get destroyed. And so he brought his top level, and and he played amazing. I mean, I think he had what six unforced errors in the first two sets yeah. on clay wow. against Novak Djokovic. It's just yeah, that, that <laughs> makes no sense. And um, yeah, and, and then when he did get nervous in the third set, in, briefly, but he got it back. And you know, you, you just kind of love his attitude and how like even he is. You know, when when people talk about Rafa, they always go on about how you know how fiery he is and Matador and all of that stuff. But for me, most impressive is just how even and and you know relaxed and not relaxed, but like level headed he is and how he accepts all things that go go against him and he did that really well in the third set when Djokovic could have come back on the other hand like with, with Djokovic um, uh, I think it was the opposite I think you know so much of the talk was about the conditions and about how the low bounce and the slow you know the cold slow conditions would favour Nadal and you know my conclusion is that maybe that got to Djokovic a bit too much maybe he entered the match thinking oh I, I'm, I'm in better shape than Nadal and maybe underestimated him, which is not what you should do against someone who is now 102 at Roland Garros. Yeah, uh, it's just, it's genuinely like 102 at one tournament. I, I don't think we're ever going to see anything on this scale ever again with, with with a surface and a certain domination of, of any tournament. And Rafa's done it at so many. But looking at now the Grand Slam tally, is it 20 to Federer, 20 to Nadal, 17 to Djokovic? Joel and I were talking about this before. I actually don't think... Novak is going to catch because he still needs three. And yes, he's had a scintillating year where he's only lost really one completed match um, at this Roland Garros and, and for the whole season. But he's only come away with one Grand Slam. And when you've seen the guys like Team and Zverev and really start to make their push, and what Tsitsipas did in the semifinals was really impressive. So I'd like to get your thoughts on whether you think he actually can still catch or was this his chance that he blew? I don't know. I, I think it, it was a big. Uh, he 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 blew. I mean, I'd say like the U.S. Open was that he blew that. Yeah. that you know, <laughs> this this one he he definitely kind of. As I said, I think he underestimated Nadal. But I mean, it's Nadal. You know, Nadal does that to people. I, I don't know. I, I think he, you know, given how dominant he was, yeah, I agree that like the other players are rising, and maybe at at some point they'll you know Sitsipas will use that match as a springboard to yeah. actually being able to beat Djokovic but as, as you also said he's only lost one completed match and that says a lot I think about kind of his level over the other over the rest of the people I don't know I'm, I'm, the thing is it's, it's just hard you know we're in such uncharted territory with just mm-hmm. their ages and you know how long they're able to maintain their level what works for Djokovic I think is that oh, and what didn't work for him in Ronald Garros, I think, is that he's become so much more like efficient as a player and 
his serve and you know in in terms of like shortening rallies and I think he really struggled against Nadal with and also even like Karina Buster like when yeah. they it became really physical and when it became longer and you know he'd bail, bail with all the drop shots you know I, I think so I think the fact that his game is now more kind of efficient that bodes well for him at least winning more slams and getting to the point where he could be like right behind them but Rafa's still here so this isn't you know it's not over yet and what's nuts is that it could be 14 in six months because obviously we're hopefully going to go back to uh, normal service next season with uh, with the grand slams and I guess this is a, a bit of a broad one Tamani but Going into next season, now that we've seen three of all Grand Slams, of course, we had Wimbledon cancelled, unfortunately, but uh, obviously we've still got a little bit of tennis left on tour events, probably more so on the ATP than the WTA. But going into 2021, I guess, what are you what are you looking forward to most about the new year? Like, are there any players that you're really looking to, to break new barriers or is it is it even simply just getting back to something of a, of a normal? Um, in terms of... Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing grass again. <laughs> um, we all are. I, I don't know. In, in, in terms of the men's, I don't know. I feel like this the, this year was also kind of... I, I do expect to see the same. I, I'm, I'm not yet convinced that with, that the, the younger players are going to overthrow Djokovic so soon. But I do think... I'm, I'm interested to see team and how he kind of, after winning his first slam and all of that stuff, how he consolidates that, if he consolidates that. I mean, I think it was good that he, he got to the French Open quarters, even if he was, you know, tired and, you know, clearly, you know, wasn't 100%, but he didn't lose in the first round to someone outside the top 100. That goes well for him. Um, with the women's, I'm just excited to see how, you know, all these, you know, it's now seven of the past eight slam champions have, been under 20 were under 23 i mean i want to see that all like come together and then playing each other more and more and you know one of the things that shriontek's run like reminded me of was just the andrescu last year and just the craziness yeah. of her and now she hasn't played for a year and um that that that's a kind of a big question mark like she's had so many injuries and so that's a, that's a big thing for me and yeah, I'd say that. Yeah, I do agree. And I think the congregation of both tours where everybody will be back, and I think that's what everybody can get really excited about in 2021. But before we do let you go, Tamani, I need to ask, we do ask a lot of our uh, global uh, guests on this show, so the people that travel to a lot of, to and fro a lot of the tournaments, um, Which what's the best tournament you've ever travelled to and what's the worst? Uh, um... <laughs> it's a tough one. I'll start with the worst, probably the one that I don't have to travel to, the O2 Arena in London, um, the ATP Finals. Just because, um, I, I just find it like because they're you know you know with this schedule there are two singles matches, and so there's not really much to do. Like yeah. when I, when I'm working there, it's like one match and then like a five hour a break, yeah. including the doubles, and then the next singles match and. You know the the good thing about tennis. You know, as 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 a journalist, that's kind of annoying. As a, a fan, I think that's that sucks as well. Because the good thing about tennis is that you know, if you go to a tournament, you get like four matches in a row, or, or you know, there's so much to watch and mm. see. Yeah. So that's that's not fun to me, and yeah, I just don't really like that. <laughs> yeah. The best Long tournament. God. Hmm. Um, I like I'd say maybe Rome. Yeah. Um, I have a soft spot for Rome, um, just because it looks very nice and the court, the yeah, it looks very nice. Um, <laughs> the the Rome, you know, I don't know, just the, just the kind of ambience and the kind. I don't know. I, I think yeah, Rome. I, yeah. I, I like the Pietrangeli court. It's probably my my favorite, and also Rome. Italian food and all of that stuff. And yeah, I think that. 
No, we do we do love Italian food on this show. Joel and I both uh, from Italian heritage as well, so we can't complain there. But yeah. we've had a few people I, I say, that... say... Sorry, sorry. I, I should say also the Australian Open. I, I do really love the Australian Open. <laughs> you didn't have to on our account, but no, <laughs> just, we, we do appreciate it. Not just because I'm talking to you guys, but like I always love like... Like when I think of the Australian Open, I think of like finishing really late at like 3am and just being able to walk through the CBD to um, to, to my hotel or wherever I'm staying and... You know, in, in other tournaments, it's like most stadiums are way outside of the city centre. And I don't know, I, I like the, just the general vibe and I love Melbourne. And so, yeah, I'd say that. Yep, we, we do love it too. We're not allowed to, uh, um, five kilometres out of our suburb at the moment, so we can't really enjoy much of it. But um, yeah, when the Australian Open does roll around, the accessibility to the city will be a key. So, Tamani Karayal, thank you so much for joining us on Breakpoint Podcast. You can check out his work at um, on The Guardian on... Uh, on uh, I'll get the website up now, The Guardian on Twitter. And also you can follow Tamani at Tumakarayal, or Tumakarayal on, uh, on Twitter and um, get around his work because it is absolutely fantastic at Guardian Sport and theguardian.com as well. There it is. I, I eventually found it. Didn't have it right in front of me, which I should have had, but uh, we got there in the end. But Tumani, thank you so much for joining us here on Breakpoint Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure and hopefully we'll be able to catch up during the Australian Open and uh, and talk some more tennis. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. It's great to be <laughs> Tumani Karayal there joining us on Breakpoint Podcast. What a journo he is and his writing. You can find it again at The Guardian uh, and just search them on Google and uh, Guardian Sport on Twitter as well. But uh, our next guest, Joel, is a man that we've gotten to know over the Tennis Menu's daily Roland Garros shows and myself as well throughout the US Open uh, shows that we did. And his name is Shane Leonage from Data Driven Sports Analytics. He's the founder there and he's a data guru. What this man doesn't know about tennis is not worth knowing. And he analyzes the trends and works a lot with On Jabor and can take a lot of credit for her rapid rise in the WTA this year. I know he's a very humble man and doesn't want to admit that, but we know that it's true. Shane, thanks so much for joining us on Breakpoint Podcast. How are you? Yeah, great, guys. Thanks for um, inviting me onto the show. Great to catch up with you two again. Really enjoyed the few occasions that I jumped on with um, the both of you at Roland Garros and then with you at Val at the US Open. So really a pleasure to come on your show. We did have a lot of fun, and you said it was daunting having three smiling guys at you with Mark Safoulis, uh, our great friend, joining us as well. But there's only two of us today, so might not be as daunting and just less less thicker beards than what Mark has got. So might be it might be a little bit different. But um, now quickly, just for the the people that haven't um haven't heard of you before, um, tell us about what you do and um and how you got into analysing data and and um and what that's translated into your career. Yeah, um, I'm a data scientist, um, work with data in a number of industries and probably three or four years ago started uh, pivoting towards working in sport. Um, so my, my full-time role is at Cricket Australia, um, I'm the lead analyst um, within community cricket, but a number of teams, including the indoor cricket team that we work with. Um, and, and with tennis, I, I, I played tennis a fair bit as juniors. I got to the AMT level, so it wasn't that great, but um, always was fascinated about uh, data and statistics. So uh, in the last couple of years, started at my own consulting um, business where we, we collect data, but we also analyse that for the players, coaches, um, parents, um, and really try and um, pick out the key things that you can actually action um, and take to your game and, and sort of set your practice sessions and, and your, scout your opponents using data. Brilliant. And um, so how the, and translating that into tennis and how did you start working with players and um, how, how did all of that come about? And tell us about the relationship with Ange Jabeur. Yeah, um, look, it, it started out um, with coaches that, that I knew and I, and I just offered to, to go with them with their players to regional events and, and, um, and was fascinated when I, on the very first occasion that they had a notebook out and they were uh, squiggling lines and trying to, to chart it and, and watch their player and give encouragement. And I was like, well, surely there's a better way to do this. So um, I initially started off doing the same thing. Um, charting it, going home, putting it in Excel, analyzing it and giving it back to them. And, and I quickly found that that was not an efficient way to do it. So, um, yeah, we got cameras set up at, at a lot of the events um, and then we'd tag the video and then analyze it. And then as it sort of progressed, we've got some more sort of advanced tools that uh, with computer vision do the data capture a lot quicker. Um, and... Um, and yeah, and then I, I do the, the analysis side. Um, and in terms of players, I think I was very fortunate um, 
maybe 18 months ago, the coach at the time of Thomas Fabiano, so Federico Placidilli, was probably the first big coach that saw some of the work that I was doing, or he may have heard from someone and, and he just asked if he if we wanted to trial with uh, uh, Thomas Fabiano. He just wanted to see what I could do. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, I think we had, had an event where he ended up being Stan Wawrinka at the event. So um, that was, <laughs> that was a, a tick. Uh, and then we sort of full-time did it from the 2019 Australian Open um, was when we kicked off and had a great year with him um, um, at Wimbledon as well. He, he beat Stefanos Sissipas, got to the third round, then beat Dominic Team at the US Open. So I think that built my profile and other coaches um, um, started to, to maybe to, to listen to, to or see some of the results and and asked about and um, yeah I was fortunate that Ons Jabur, um, the coach Isam Jalali, he he reached out to me and just um, asked if we could sort of collaborate and and yeah we've uh, had some success. Um, again, I, I I put a lot of that down to a great coach and an athlete that listens and and is willing to work. Um, and I think I, I add maybe one or two percent to that. Um, but it uh, yeah glad to be playing a part. Just before we do start crunching some of the numbers, uh, Shane, from Roland Garros, because there were some um, some really interesting trends that you've identified. Tell us about Ons and what it's like working with her, because I think she's a really great story. Obviously, she comes from a, a unique part of the world in a tennis sense. We don't really see a lot of players come from Tunisia, North Africa, the Arabic world. So like, what does she like to work with? Because she seems like a, a just a really genuine kind of person and uh, a great role model for not only women in that region, but just just aspiring athletes generally too. Yeah, I mean, um, very fun loving. Uh, I think um, t- tennis is a job, and uh, and but I think she she enjoys uh, uh, her life. I think um, and um, has a lot of fun. Loves football. Um, very knowledgeable on sport. Um, and I think the big thing, and, and I remember the first video when his son said, this is the player, uh, and I started looking and my first impression was she, she plays tennis almost like a male player. And and when I talked to him, he said, well, when she grew up, juniors, there was only male players at a club. So naturally she just picked up on how they play the game using the slice, the variety, coming to the net a bit, but um, very touch game um, and using power and alternating speeds on a shot, which is very different to the traditional WTA player that you see that hits the ball flat, um, hits hard, every shot's almost the same. Um, so that variety sort of came, came about that way. Um, I must admit, uh, I deal 99% with Isam, so I don't have a lot of verbal interaction with Ons, um, but um, yeah, she's in the limited interaction I've got. She's very polite, um, respects, I think, the, the work that, that I do. So um, yeah, love working for, for someone like that. Yeah, she seems it. And uh, I think it, well, it sounds like I'd get along with her well if she's a fan of football. I, I could, uh, could probably could probably, could probably chat to her a bit about that, but she did have a great run uh, at the French Open, fell to Danielle Collins in the end, but she's got herself up to world number 32 in the WTA rankings. And you did mention that variety, Shane, and she was, uh, I guess, one of many players that really tried to work the drop shot uh, into her game with the the slower balls and, and the slower conditions. And can you sort of just, just talk to that um, all these numbers about, about drop shots? Yeah, and I might just touch on the, the point on Ons and, and the drop shot. It, look, she's, she's known for that drop shot. Um, um, and, and one of the things when, when I started working um, with the team, I looked at... I looked at the type of player she was um, and I suppose the transition from that player to the player she is now. And um, I think, um, and this is not, not a go at her past coaches or anything like that, but she, when she came onto the tour, like she, as a junior, she had a lot of variety, but then when she came onto the tour, she was trying to hit the ball the same way, the flat, because I think she was just told that's how you sort of make it on the WTA tour. And, and, um, and she lost all that variety um, that she had and, and she didn't – I mean, she, she got to a reasonable level. She's been around that 70 to 100 mark for the last three, four years, but she'd stagnated in that spot. Um, and then last year she started using the drop shot. She almost pivoted the other way and she was using the drop shot and the slice a, a lot. And, and, and I suppose when I came in this year with, with Isam, we were going, okay, that there is some value in this drop shot and, and using the slice and variety, but where can we find that tipping point where, where it's useful and it doesn't sort of diminish in value? And that's that's been sort of ongoing work, work with, with them um, to try and 
keep that creativity in a game, but find the balance. And um, and and just on the second point, the drop shot, I think we, we've heard a lot about it and the conditions definitely did suit um, that at this Roland Garros a lot more than in the past. But um, I, I've been big on saying that it, it's not a robust strategy still. You can't build your game around hitting 50, 60 drop shots and expecting to win. We, I know Gast, um, I think there was Hugo Gaston was maybe an exception in one or two of his matches where he, he did use it a lot. But um, the norm isn't going to be you're going to win um, the majority of your points um, that way. And, and the analysis that I've done in, in the past few days was really looking at at what point does the drop shot become too predictable that it loses its value. And, and um, I think on the men, it was, and I was looking at 30 shot blocks, I think by the fourth or fifth shot, it was dipping under 50% success rate. And the women, it was, I think, about six or seven. Um, so again, um, it was, it, I saw it in the final. I think Djokovic had a bit of success early, but Nadal started reading it. Um, and once he, he, he picked up on it, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be a way that uh, Novak was going to win a lot of points on. And, and it actually disrupted his own rhythm. So when, when he was making, I think, one and a half times more unforced errors on the ball after the drop shot. So um, it, it was um, sort of counter, counter, countering his own game as well. Yeah, well, it was interesting, and like a lot of players, seemingly were trying to play more to try and suit the conditions because the balls weren't bouncing as high. But um, yeah, you are right. I think a lot of players did get discovered, and Hugo Gaston, I think, was the only one that really made it work against Dominic Team in that epic match in the fourth round. But looking at the winners and Rafael Nadal and Iga Swiatek and the tournament as a whole, what were some of the trends that you noticed in the data? And I know we did talk about one about the the time within rallies. Um, so talk to us a little bit about that and any other um, sort of trends that you found really interesting and peculiar about this Roland Garros rather than previous tournaments. Yeah, I think the, the duration of points, um, it was nearly a second more than it was last year. And, and I think the heaviness of the conditions just uh, elongated some of the, the points. And I think there was a, a, an additional, I don't have the exact number in my head, but I think it was uh, the average rally length was 4.6 last year and it was maybe 5.4 or 5.5 this year. So there's definitely longer points Um but uh, if you looked at the final, Nadal won it in the 0-4 category. He, he obliterated Novak um, by playing that first strike after his serve. And, and then on the return, it was really getting a, 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 a I wouldn't say loopy, but a heavy ball um, with no pace to Djokovic and then striking on the on the, on the the return plus one. Um, but, but again, the damage was done in the 0-4 sort of category. And then um, if there might have been a few points that are trickling over that, but... Um, uh, I think Novak actually broke even maybe on the five plus category. If you looked at it as a whole, it was, he just got annihilated uh, sort of north to four block. Yeah. No, it seems as though he did. And Nadal was able to shorten those points really quickly on the women's side. What did you notice about Iga Swiatek and what she was able to do to claim her first Grand Slam title? Yeah, remarkable story. Um, again, she she. Uh, hopefully, I don't offend people by saying this, but she doesn't play tennis like a female. Um, no, she, she doesn't. She, her patterns are very sort of very male inspired patterns, um, and that's. Um, and again, there's there's a few players I think on, on I think ons like I count in that sort of category. Ash Barty is another one. Um, um, Sue Herse, she she has that sort of variety, but yeah. um, I think. Eager is definitely one where yeah uses uh, the angles, um, uses um, sort of the variety, um, and I think she was maybe even second or third um, on hitting drop shots of drop shots, which is a it's 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 traditionally not a shot that females hit drop shots of drop shots, but she she was doing that a fair bit as well um, and executing. So um, I, I think she's an all surface player. Um, I think I think it was the junior Wimbledon she won. Um, yes, in 2018. And, and the fact that she's come... Um, uh, yeah, look, I, 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 I hope she is injury-free and has the same sort of motivation. And I think just listening to her, I think she will. She has all the tools to dominate this sport. Um, and it's a, it's a remarkable story. Uh, uh, and she's a huge Rafa fan as well. Mm -hmm. I, you can tell yeah. by, by the way she carries on. I think that someone was saying that... Um, uh, quarter and Ego were maybe even more happy than Rafa for Rafa winning the tournament than I. <laughs> yeah, well, Ego Shviontek's tweet at the end of the match, I'll get that up, and and after Rafa actually won it, she was she was stoked, and she says she absolutely loves what Rafa Nadal does, and 
Um, she said, congratulations, Rafael Nadal. It's amazing to, to kind of share this experience with you. Am I even allowed to say this? And it's like, you know what? Yes, you are eager because it was an amazing, <laughs> amazing tournament. And Shane, speaking of amazing, that is you, my friend. And remember, you can go to ddsportsanalytics.com to check out Shane's work as well as Tennis Nerds as uh, as well. And you can follow Shane on Twitter at Leonard Shane and Data Driven Sports Analytics on Instagram as well. So catch him all there. His work is unparalleled in this industry and it's so good to see what he does um, in tennis. And Shane, thank you very much for sharing, uh, sharing some of the data trends of the French Open with us on Breakpoint. I'm sure we'll see you very soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, I love, love the work you guys do. So um, jump on your website, tune in. Uh, it's it's on, on the various sort of streaming channels. It's a great show. Shane Leonage there joining us from Data Driven Sports Analytics. He is a wonderful, wonderful man in tennis. Hashtag legendary Leonage, as we said on our Tennis Menus Daily Roland Garros show. And, um, yeah, he, he's just an absolute guru when it comes to data. And chatting tennis with him is a lot of fun. But, uh, Joel, we'll move on to some of the results from overnight and the Aussie men in Colonia in Germany. I did think this was in Italy before the show until you rightly corrected me. Thank you for that. Um, Jordan Thompson <laughs> defeated by Dennis Novak, 6-3, 6-3. John Millman, uh, surprisingly ousted by Misha Zverev, 6-1, 6-4, and Mark Polman's got a lucky loser, his second lucky loser in a row, um, and he was defeated by Hubert Hercash, 6-2, 7-5. But a funny story with John Millman, had to pay about 194 euros um, to get his washing done, so he's had to turn his underpants inside out and play, and that might be a reason as to why uh, Misha Zverev was able to get him so quickly. But um, yeah, um, yeah, he, he just got elected to the player count, ATP player council as a 1-50 ranked player. Representative, other new representatives are Felix Auger, Aliasim, and Jeremy Shadi and Andy Murray. So good on them with uh, Kevin Anderson taking over as president after with the withdrawals of Djokovic, Pospisil, and John Isner with their new PTPA. So not sure what's going to happen there. But before we do get to the Benoit of the week, Joel, there has been a positive COVID test at the St. Petersburg Open. We don't know if it's a player, but they have made an omission from the draw. And there has only been one. So if we put two and two together, it could be this player. Do you want to chat a bit further about that? Uh, yeah. So look, from everything that, that I've read and seen on Twitter, the player that has supposedly tested positive is Sam Query. The ATP didn't confirm it in the statement. I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, I'm not exactly sure what the what the laws are and the regulations around around privacy and that kind of thing. But yeah, if, if you... If you look at the timing of Sam Query's withdrawal from that event and the actual announcement of the positive case, it, it, yeah, it's pretty obvious. It, it, it is it is Sam Query. So look, it's it's unfortunate for uh, for for the big fella, and um, yeah, unfortunately, just just another another of the male players that have have tested positive. David Goffin a few weeks before that also uh, got got a positive test, and you know it's interesting if you compare it. And we won't we won't spend too much time on it because we want to get to Benoit of the week, but. If you look at who's tested positive, pretty much all of the cases, other than Anna Kalinskaya, have come on on the ATP. Hmm. Who knows what they're bloody doing there? But uh, it's it's fairly interesting. But also, um, poor Yannick Sinner is a bit unlucky. He had David Goffin in the first round of the Australian yeah. of the French Open, and then uh, Alexander Zverev. So he's had two players that have been like also very lucky because it probably hampered them in their matches against him. But um, you know, he, he'd be like, geez, how the hell did I not get sick here? But, um, you know, it must be a bad, a bad luck charm for those two players. But, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird. And I'm sure that's probably, unfortunately, not going to be the last positive case that we see for players. And hopefully none of them eventuate down here in Melbourne if the Australian Open does go ahead um, to the scale that Tennis Australia wants it to go ahead. And hopefully it does. They're doing all the work that they can to try and get it sorted. But it is time for the Benoit of the Week, Joel. And our favourite enigmatic Frenchman, Benoit Pair. He's back playing somehow. I, I thought he wanted the year to end, but he's still going strong. Um, but we'll chat a little bit about who was the Benoit of the Week this week. And it is a bit of a positive slash hilarious one. Yeah, it is a positive slash hilarious one. So, look, if, if you didn't see the vice presidential debate last week between Kamala Harris and, and, and Mike Pence, you'd probably still be aware of this because this sent Twitter into absolute meltdown. Benoit of the week is the fly on Mike Pence's head. Now, it was interesting just just doing 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 uh, doing some some looking and some searching and and having a look at um, at the trend. Single word. Flies. It had, I think, within ten minutes, it had more than three hundred thousand tweets or something. Um, 
So that says enough. But yeah, the, the fly gets it. Fly, fly, flies are attracted to shit. So um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, that kind of, that kind of says. This is the but, man um, who doesn't want yeah. to get political on Breakpoint. He just goes absolutely bang. <laughs> Look, it had to be said. It had to be said. But yeah, that fly, your Ben Rye of the week. Congratulations. <gasps> oh, that was the last thing I was expecting you to say. But there he goes. Joel ends on an absolute bombshell to our final Grand Slam podcast of 2020. But it has been an absolute pleasure, Joel. As usual, Rafael Nadal and Igor Swiatek, your favourite player now, winning the uh, winning the Grand, winning the final major of the year. And Igor Swiatek, I think we're going to start calling her the uh, the friendly grocer because of. Uh, IGA here in Australia, the IGA local supermarkets—they call themselves a friendly grocer. So I think we'll just uh, we'll just keep Igish we on deck to that because she seems friendly enough. But Joel, thank you very much, and uh, I'll see you next week. No worries, I'll see you next week, Matt. Been an absolute pleasure chatting tennis with you, and uh, also you can follow us on Twitter at Breakpoint Pod, Instagram Breakpoint Podcast, Facebook Breakpoint Podcast. We are there as well, and also you can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and also on Mushka. Wherever you get your shows from, we'll be there. But remember, it's been a big week. We've got uh, well a bit of a lull in tennis, but there's still plenty going on. Three ATP tournaments going on this week, and we'll catch you next week for the most comprehensive tennis podcast in the world.